Hi, and welcome to The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. Uh, I'm your host, Corey, and today I am joined by Justin Clark. Uh, Justin, we we know each other going back quite a ways now, um, from the atheist community days. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I guess a good thing to start off with is what are you up to now? Sure. So um, I'll sort of say what I'm working on professionally and then what I do with like political work. So um, currently I, I work as the digital initiatives director for the Indiana which is a part of the Indiana State Library. So um, I help manage um, statewide digitization projects for the library. Okay. Um, we have two major initiatives that I work on. One is called Indiana Memory. Okay. Um, which is this uh, broad statewide digitization project. And the other one is Hoosier State Chronicles, which is our state newspaper project. Okay. Um, and so I'm a public historian by training um, and with an emphasis on digital history. So it's the kind of stuff I do. <laughs> and then in terms of politics, um, I'm currently the, uh, the co-chair of the political education community for Central Indiana DSA, Dem- Democratic Socialists of America. Nice. Um, I've been involved with them since April. Um, right after the Bernie campaign kind of ended, um, I worked on the Bernie campaign in 2020, did a little bit of work in it in 20, 2016. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then when that folded, I joined DSA and uh, I've been really involved with them ever since. And it's a, it's a really great, um, uh, exciting um, measure. Um, I was involved with atheism, organized atheism for many, many years. Um, and I've been out of it for about now about two and a half and, I'm glad I left that behind. <laughs> yeah, I bet. yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't even know what it looks like anymore because I've mostly left it behind as well. Uh, I know that it was kind of going once, once it started the, the anti-feminist and anti-SJW type, uh, way of going things, uh, I couldn't stay in it anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah. I, I think the other day, just for kicks, like I listened to Seth Andrews, who I hadn't listened to for years. Right. You know, and I listened to him and it was kind of like walking into a time machine because it didn't really change all that much. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, it, and it's like the same kind of stuff that they always talk about. And I was like, oh, okay. So and where, then that was it. <laughs> where's the growth? <laughs> like, where's the change? Like, it's not that interesting to me. Right. It was basically the, 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 per- the he was not that interesting. The person he was talking to was, it was a young woman who was, who had been in the Christian music industry. Okay. And she had made a documentary, I guess, with like Buzzfeed or something about sort of the dark side of Christian contemporary music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. Right. For sure. Um, and so, but it was a lot of the same stuff yeah. of like, you know, how are you LGBTQ, but yet you still are a Christian. Why are you that? What, what about the Bible? Like this, it's the very typical stuff, which is like fine. But like, yeah. I think there was just something, there was a shift that happened with me a few years ago and we can get into that later. Yeah, but basically sure. I listened to it and I was just kind of like, eh, eh, <laughs> fine. I think probably the only people that I watch now that were connected to that in any way were Hannah and Jake. Um, okay. Uh, formerly Hugo and Jake. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Apologize to Hannah for, for dead, dead naming her, but used to be Hugo and Jake. Hannah came out as trans. Okay. Um, and, and they used to do the Bible reloaded. I don't know if you remember that. I do actually remember they that. Were, <laughs> they, yeah. And they used to do like the, the, they sort of did like a mystery science theater 3000 with like bad Christian movies and, and those two are great. And, and they yeah. sort of evolved with the times and right. most of, most of the other people, but, but yeah. yeah, they're great. And they're probably the only people I, I sort of watch or pay attention to from that whole. Yeah. Thing. 
I I still I still listen to the Scathing Atheist crew on all their shows and uh, the Cognitive Dissonance guys because they although Ooh. they are still liberals rather than leftists uh, they have grown a lot over the years I I felt and and uh, I mean nobody's perfect they still got a long long ways to go in my opinion but <laughs> 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 but these are the same guys that in 2017 I believe it was uh, they were saying that. They didn't really like Bernie and they were very pro Hillary. And, and, uh, then in 2000, 2020, you do 2019, 2020, they're, they're saying they're singing the praises of AOC and they're, they're very on board with Bernie. Um, and like very much, uh, instead of straw manning socialists and, uh, you know, anarchists and whatnot, they're actually like listening to, uh, well, maybe they're not listening to, but they're like ta- speaking about us in like, reasonable terms <laughs> yeah 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 we're not getting like the typical sort of like red baiting or yeah you know uh you know comparing comparisons to stalin and that kind of stuff right right which is great i mean that's totally great i mean like you know and and i think like with hannah and jake especially i mean i think i think they probably fit at least hannah does for sure fits way more in sort of the leftist camp now than okay yeah, but but um, but they're pretty cool. I mean, um, although I will say they did a stream recently where Jake was talking about how like if you look at the Biden platform, how good it is, and I'm like, platforms mean nothing. Dude. They mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, you can it's say like, whatever you want on a platform. You can say whatever you want, and then even at the end of the day, and hopefully this is like too off point, but like if you look at the Democratic Party platform of 2020, there's one very particular issue where it's actually to the right of the party platform in 1948 Oof. when Harry Truman was running for re-election <laughs> against Thomas Dewey, and it's on the issue of health care. Mm. When, when Truman ran in 1948, he basically ran on Medicare for all. He ran on the idea of a universal public health system service that everybody would benefit from. Okay. And, and, uh, he got really close in the late 1940s and then it didn't happen, but, um, it would happen later with Medicare. Medicare sort of was something that, that Harry Truman sort of started and it got kind of finished with Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s, which is why the first Medicare recipient was Harry Truman. He was the first okay. person to sign up. They had a signing ceremony in 1965. Um, but yeah, so the Democratic Party platform today is actually more conservative than it was in 1948 on that particular issue. Right. So right. I think it's like those are things that. So like, while I totally get a lot of the, the, the oh, there's a lot of good that's in there. Like, no one is committed to it, and right. that's the thing. Like, yeah. they're they're just documents. They're just sort of they're they're you know they're paper tigers. They don't really mean anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh. Like I've, uh, it's hard uh, to believe platforms. I mean, the Liberal Party here in Canada they uh, they ran their first term, guaranteeing re- uh, electoral reform, and they got a lot of support from uh, left wing people because of that, including myself. And I mean, they once they're in power, they just say, ah, you know, well, it's too complicated, it's too hard to do. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah. Platforms are are one thing, but I guess in some, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that Biden is worse than Trump, <laughs> right? But it's, uh, yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. But I think it's super important for people to realize that like, you know, I was, I kind of like the way Cornell West framed it. It's like, 
you know, you either can pick the sort of neoliberal disaster, or you can pick the, neo, the, the sort of the, the, the proto-fascist nightmare. It's like, I'll choose the, the neoliberal <laughs> um, exactly. model if, if, if it's like, if the other one is just so bad. And it's like, I mean, that's a big reason why, I, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, you know, reluctantly, because we have a two-party system and there really wasn't a good, outside of just like personal preferences, which is kind of like whatever, like, um, there really wasn't a good third party reason to vote for like right. for third party here in the United States. Like just unless like if I thought that like Howie Hawkins, cause I live in Indiana, like we're not a swing state. Trump won this. This was the, this was the first state that went to Trump in right. 2016. It was the first state to win him to him this year. So I could have easily voted third party. It wouldn't have mattered. Right. But like, like Howie Hawkins had to have 5% to get federal funding. Right. Okay. That's kind of the benchmark. And he wasn't even close. I mean, he did worse in 2020 than Jill Stein did in 2016. So it's, it's like, while I admire Howie a lot and I thought his party platform was good. And I thought there was a lot about what he was doing was right. At the end of the day, it's like voting for you doesn't really mean all that much in the grand scheme. of things, right, right. Yeah. Which is why I voted for Biden. And, 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 and the thing is, is like, I don't like it. I didn't like it. You know, but the thing is, it's like, as, <laughs> yeah. As leftists, I think we have to acknowledge that like electoralism is only one aspect of political action, one. And two is that as a leftist, you're never, ever really going to be happy with whoever you vote with. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Quite frankly, you're just never going to be satisfied. Yeah, they're all um, neoliberal, <laughs> liberal. Yeah, they're all neoliberal, right? <laughs> or, or what passes as radical in our discourse is, is, is somebody like Bernie, who I, I have tremendous amount of respect for and admiration for and a lot of reasons yeah. i am the way i am today is because of him right if you really look at his politics like they are what you know they would be the center of like european style right you know social yeah. democracy like he's not what he's advocating for isn't all that radical which is kind of what he should have leaned into in the campaign the thing i always found that was i think troubling for him i think on just a pure messaging level was he would often say kind of contradictory things to the electorate so he would say things like you know, is Medicare for all radical? Is $15 minimal wage at a radical? We do those kinds of things, right? right? And like, that's a really good point of saying like, actually, these aren't that radical if you think about it, right? But then he would yeah. say things like, we're going to do a political revolution and this and that and the other. It's like, well, choose one, man. Like, yeah, you, like, you got to choose one. And I think like for normies, like for people who don't obsess over the shit the way I do, <laughs> yeah. the way other men, the way that we do, like you have to find a way to appeal to them and so, you know, there are a lot of people yeah. who don't want to hear that kind of other crap. They want to kind of hear the more base material stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think that's where he made a mistake, but, but, you know, I mean, I was there for it, but like, I, but I'm like, you don't have to, you don't have to work hard. To get me, <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Bernie was our one shot in the United States. Bernie was our one shot to sort of short circuit history. Like, cause yeah. I genuinely believe like the goals of us as leftists broadly, you know, wherever you kind of fit on the map. I feel like what we're interested in doing is a decades long project. I, oh, I very absolutely. much see that. Yeah. You know, I see it very much the way that people, that the conservative right came up in the 1950s, you know, through yeah. Goldwater's 1964 run all the way up through Reagan. Like that's a 20, 30 year process of getting to the apex of power. Yeah. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Exactly. But I thought that Bernie was going to be this one moment, you know, <laughs> they, how they talk about an, an evolution, you know, punctuated equilibrium. You know, progress is often gradual and slow, but every once in a while, look at these little peaks where things will kind of change like that. Yeah. And Bernie was one of those. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And unfortunately, it didn't come fully to fruition. But I think if you look at his impact, I mean, it's absolutely enormous. You know, I don't think without him, I don't think you have 
people like AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar in Congress. I don't think you have um, the DSA almost at 100,000 members, which right. is the largest socialist um, left-wing organization since the 1930s. Like we don't have those <laughs> kinds of things without Bernie. And so I think in that respect, he was definitely great and did kind of short circuit history a little bit. But I think all the time of like, what was his presidency been like? And I think about that all the time. Yeah, I, I guess it's hard to predict what it would have been yeah. like, but, but it is, it is, uh, it is interesting because without Bernie and maybe even without Trump, a lot of people wouldn't be radicalized to the level that they became radicalized. Absolutely. I would still be a crappy neoliberal if Trump. <laughs> right. Eh? My, my politics would still be absolutely trash if, if, if I didn't have the sort of years of, you know, of kind of realizing that like Trump wasn't like the problem that he was like a symptom of it. Right. Right. Yeah. And then I was like, and it just took me years to realize like, well, what's the problem then? <laughs> you know? And that was, and I really, and to this day, I still like him, you know, but, but as, as John Oliver, I liked, he always liked watching John Oliver every week and he would talk about a problem and sent the other. And I felt like, well, then when you start to kind of look at it and you realize like all these problems are actually connected mm-hmm. and then you realize what the problem is. The problem is capitalism. You figure <laughs> it out. Like, yeah. At some point, you figure it out. You realize, oh, this is the problem. When people talk about we have structural problems in this country, that's what they mean because they won't ever say it out loud, right? Because most Democrats are liberals. They're not actually going to say it out loud. Yeah, exactly. So just was super important for me. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is a huge part of my own political evolution. I would say Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and leaving the atheist movement. Those three things are really important <laughs> yeah. for my shift as a political thinker, as a political sort of, you know, animal. So uh, let's let's go with that. Let's uh, – sure. what, what – I mean, the last time we spoke um, – like in podcast on online or whatever, uh, we were talking about, you just had decided that Dave Rubin was no good. <laughs> and yeah, man. <laughs> that was back when you had a, your own show, uh, reason revolution still, I, I believe. And, yeah. uh, yeah, we spent an hour and a half talking about Dave Rubin and how awful he was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, how did you Ruben get from there to here? He's an interesting cat, man. <laughs> the concept. Yeah, oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, so how did you get from there uh, to here? That's a great question. So summer of 2018 is a very watershed moment for me in my life, right? Okay. So at the time, I was still running Reason Revolution. I was still involved in the broader atheist movement, but I was, ha- I, I was having a lot of life problems, like personal life problems. You know, I was having health issues. Uh, my marriage wasn't great. You know, I'd been married a couple of years at that point. We were having problems. Okay. Um, and I was just spread too thin. Yeah, and happens, it was around that time that I kind of discovered a book that would kind of change my life. It was a book called Essentialism. Okay. It's by a guy named Greg McEwen. Now, in a lot of ways, this book is very much like there are parts of it I really, really like. And then there are parts of it that are clearly just sort of business propaganda crap. It's definitely of that sort of <laughs> okay. school. It's know, kind of a self-help like, thing. You know, yeah, it definitely has that. But his whole thing was about like, you need to eliminate the unnecessary in your life to make your highest contributions. 
Okay. And I kept thinking about that. I'm like, what? Okay. So what is the unnecessary stuff in my life that's not making me happy? You know? And one of them was being a part of the atheist movement. I I had really become become extremely disillusioned with it broadly. Mm. And I had found that as time went on, I just noticed there was this very clear shift that had happened. And I was very bothered by it. And the shift was made most evident to me with Dave Rubin. Right. Um, you know, Dave Rubin was this guy, you know, for those who don't know, um, Dave Rubin is basically a professional dipshit. Um, but he used to be this sort of, he was a failed stand-up comedian who got a job with the Young Turks, the very successful sort of left, um, left-leaning, sort of <laughs> left-ish, yeah. Um, although Anna Kasparian's becoming pretty damned cool, I'll have to say. She's yeah, great. and uh, was it Hassan Piker? Hassan Piker, yeah. Yeah, I would oh, have to really say, cool. yeah. Yeah, and Anna is awesome. Yeah. She hosts a show for Jacobin now called Weekends, which is great. Oh, nice. Um, but, um, but yeah, so Ruben was this guy who was with the Young Turks, then he became this sort of right-wing-ish, you know. We, forever he said, well, I'm, I was of the left, but I left the left, <laughs> right. this kind of thing. Yeah, classical, and liberal, very centrist. Classical, liberal, yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and very much like at that time, like with my politics, like my politics in like 2017, 2018, were, like mid-2018, were very Steven Pinker. Like I was very right. much in these sort of like – markets create ha- like prosperity and like we all we have to do is just tame capitalism like i was very much in that camp right but then there was this like excuse me there was this like noticeable shift like as his show went on it got crazier and weirder and weirder and weirder and i just remember <laughs> the breaking point for me was when he had the right-wing nutcase katie hopkins on his show okay and katie hopkins is this like super right-wing horrible lady who talked about after like, I think either the Paris attacks um, in 2015 or 2016, something around those, like she literally said that we needed to have like a final solution for, for, for Muslims Whoops. in Europe. Whoops. Um, <laughs> and she's basically like sort of a, you know, before there was like thinking of like the alt-right, which I guess is not really a term used as much anymore, but oh, like yeah. you know, a couple of years ago it was, she was definitely much in that vogue. Okay. And so he just kept having more and more people like that on the show. And then, right. and then it was, it was that. And then it was like the success of somebody like Jordan Peterson. Right. Yeah. And all actually, of those people. I remember talking to you. We might've had you on brainstorm with uh, uh, the yeah. crew after, after our last solo chat, actually. And we talked about Jordan Peterson and why you, <laughs> we all thought he was kind of a crackpot. <laughs> didn't realize he was going to get yeah. popular so, the way he did. So he is a crackpot. I want to apologize to any of your listeners from that time period uh, <laughs> or whatever kind of apologetics or bullshit I was doing about him. <laughs> um, because, yeah. And the main reason I did it was because my partner in my venture with Reason Revolution was a very big Jordan Peterson guy. Right. And I had to sort of work around that. And that was a big, that was also a big problem. Like basically I kept coming to him with issues. I'm like, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this thing he said, or that thing he said? And you get what you get from people like him, which is, um, oh, well, you don't understand. You don't get the context of it. You have to watch every YouTube lecture and read every 500 pages of to understand exactly <laughs> saying that women should be forced into marriages with men like like it's it was very weird 
but basically I was, you know, I was done, you know, my vision of what I wanted to do was done. And I was really tired of hiding behind like a persona. Like okay, it was, yeah. it was like, you know, you know, my first show was called an army of principles and I used to work with this and I used to do that. And then I had recent revolution. And I, said, I was like, I just want to be me. I just want to be right. Justin Clark. I want yeah. people to see what I have to say as a human being and not be tied into this kind of box. For sure. But Ruben was a big part of that because he, you know, he became incredibly right wing. I'll never forget when he said, like, if Trump's elected, we'll hold him, we'll hold his feet to the, I'll hold his feet to the fire as much as anybody, which is complete horseshit. Um, You know, and I said, like, and I kept saying things. I'm like, mark my words. He's going to, you know, he's going to become a full blown conservative. And then he does. I said, mark my words. He's going to become religious. And then he does. Yeah. Like he actually abandoned atheism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he abandoned his, his he he abandoned his initial proposition like the the whole reason that he has a show is because he always appealed to like the skeptics yeah. and the sort of atheist crowd right and that's gone yeah um and then i and then i said mark my words he's going to like get a deal with like prager you or some shit like that and then he did like it was yep. everything i thought he was going to do he did because Ruben is, and I know this word gets thrown around a lot. I know it's very cliche to say, but the man is a grifter. Right. And, yeah. and the thing is, it's like, because there's no money in being true to yourself. Like, I, I, <laughs> I wish there was. I wish there was, but there really isn't. Like, yeah. the amount of money that, you know, we could have cleaning up by becoming conservative Christians would be like insane. Yeah. But he knew where his bread was buttered, right? right. So it's like. So uh, he lacked. Yeah. He didn't have the principles to uh, stand on his own and no. just have no money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because he's a man, and the whole story that Anna Kasparian tells about Ruben was the reason that he left TYT was because he basically wanted to do a thirty-minute TV show every week and make two hundred thousand dollars a year. Woof. That was the big reason he wanted it was, was he's like, I want to do a 30 minute show once a week and I want to get paid six figures to do it. Wow. And they were like, are you nuts? Like, no, like that's not going to work. You know, you're not that impressive. You, you're not that impressive. Like, and so, and apparently like, and even when he did the 30 minute show with TYT, it wasn't actually terribly good. Most of it was right. gossipy kind of shit. Which he kind of still pedals in. I mean, if you really watch him politically, he's not all that interesting because he doesn't ever really delve into policy. He, he ought, he'll he just sort of talk in his typical talking points or he'll say his typical, you know, like yeah. the regressive lift and all that like oh, stupid yeah. crap or whatever. <laughs> and it's like and it's like and of course he became a Trumper. And I said and I used to make the joke, you know, and maybe it's a little off color, but I'll say it anyway. Like mark my words, you know, he'll leave his husband at some point and become straight. I mean, I I don't because he has no principles because the man has no principles or like personal beliefs or values or core propositions. The man is an absolute he's a void. Yeah. So like, you know, and I apologize if if that that comes off as homophobic. I don't intend it to be. But like my my main point is just saying that, like, if he knew of a way to make more money by ditching his husband and marrying a woman, he would do it because I think he is truly that unprincipled and without any real values. Yeah. And that got me to start thinking about the whole ecosystem that he was in, right? Right. And in the intellectual dark web. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And this comes in, you know, there was there was there there were really two things that happened at the same time that really changed me. One was ditching Dave Rubin and the other one was finding Michael Brooks. Right. Yeah. And Michael Brooks was 
we lost him this year, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Absolute titan of 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 the left media space. Um, and he was incredible. He did a like a 20 minute video that, that the majority report pulled because um, Dave Rubin got butt hurt that he was called dumb so many times by <laughs> by Michael in, in this Michael Brooks in this video. But Michael just lays out in this excellent, you know, 15, 20 minute video, just how much of a complete total idiot the Dave Rubin was. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. And then it was, oh, he does like he does like critiques of Sam Harris, you know, yeah. who I used to really, really like. And I started watching those and I went like, oh yeah, this is very interesting. Right. And then I started listening to a show and his show kind of changed me. It was like, that was the moment, you know, every once in a while you come across something and it's just this like cathartic moment. Right. And I guess I was kind of on the path there. I didn't really know where it was going to go next. And through him, I really discovered a whole new kind of world of thinking, you know, it was him and, and, you know, people like ContraPoints and others, you know, I was watching and I was like, okay, there's a whole different world of this. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was when I discovered that. And then it was, it was, you know, and then it was rediscovering Marx. It was just rediscovering Marx who I hadn't read since college and realized I'm like, oh no, this is, this is me. Like I, this is what I, this is what I've been meaning to like. You know, <laughs> right. This was in my head all the time, but. <laughs> this was like, I, you know, it's always when you like, like I said earlier, like you have all these like disparate elements that you're sort of thinking about and you're thinking through and then you realize, oh, actually they all come together. Yeah, yeah. And then that's when you realize like, oh, this is kind of how this shit works. Um, but yeah, yeah. Ruben was one of those guys who, you know, I think, I just think the dude is for bullshit. And I, I think he knows it. I think he knows that he's a sack of crap. I think he knows that he's a total grifter and he doesn't care. Yeah. Um, because he's got, you know, he just bought like an $8 million house. So it's like, why, you know, like, Man, I would love to make that much money and be that stupid and be that lazy, <laughs> which is kind of the other thing, you know. Because you can make up with a lack of intelligence with like a good work ethic. I feel like anybody can. Oh, right? yeah. Some people yeah. are not like always intellectually gifted. But if you bust your ass, like you can make a living and like I'm not forever going to begrudge you that. But to be that stupid and to be that lazy and to be that successful, <laughs> you it just goes to show you truly yeah. how desperate the capitalist class is to have someone be their mouthpiece. Well, you know? yeah. And the real selling point at the start was like, uh, the guy who left the left, right? Like well, as soon as yes. he started selling that, I mean, that's a, it's like born again Christians who go in and, you know, they, they say, Oh, I used to be an atheist or, you know, yep. believers in any one thing that used to, Oh, I used to be a skeptic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, CS Lewis made a whole career out of it. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, but, uh, uh it's one of those things like any any person who is willing to give up their principles and switch teams uh, to the side with money will find themselves with a bunch of people offering them their money. <laughs> yeah. And then just realizing that there was this whole ecosystem that he lived in. Like that was kind of the other thing, too, and sort of learning to sort of just truly the sort of economic incentives behind all oh, of this. Yeah. Because I think that was the other thing too, was like there was him and there was, you know, Prager U and then there was Joe Rogan. Like there was this whole ecosystem of people. Yeah. And realizing that like all of these people, it's very incestual where like this person will go on Ruben, then they'll go on Rogan, then they'll go on Prager. And it was like all, they were all like connected. Yeah. And they're like, wow, that's really strange. Like, you know, and then just realizing that like, 
Ruben had been accepting money from Coke from the Koch brothers through this learn Liberty thing. Yeah. And, and then in like, why is he having this like wild ass libertarian on his show talking about like, you know, how like tribal labor is actually good like, like, <laughs> right. or whatever, just evil shit you can think of. And you're like, Oh, this is funded by the Cokes. And then like, and then, Oh, now he's with Glenn Beck. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> which I, the, the Glenn Beck thing's funny because like Glenn Beck, for all intents and purposes, for most people, I think like his whole media venture has not been as successful as people think it is. Um, but it's successful enough that like he can, um, you know, that he can, uh, then he can kind of get around with it. But yeah, Ruben, it was, it was the Katie Hopkins interview. And then the other thing was him, was him sort of doing apologetics for Alex Jones. That was the other one where he was just kind of talking about like, Oh, well, you know, Alex Jones isn't so bad. This and that and the other. And I was like, no, actually he's a piece of shit. I don't understand why you're. That was like always giving, uh, that was always Joe Rogan's thing too, right? Like, yes, <laughs> having Alex Jones on his show and then being like, "Oh, you know, he doesn't really mean most of that stuff. He's just saying it to rile people up or whatever." He's just, yeah, uh, yeah. But at some point, he can rile people up too much, and the thing he's doing is actually really harmful. Yes, <laughs> but well, and the thing that's fascinating about Jones is if you've seen his evolution of the last few years, especially with the Trump era, is that like he holds these like two contradictory things at the same time. Mm. One of them is that he's like this kind of countercultural figure. He's like, you know, like the deep state's coming after you or whatever. And, so, you know, whatever bullshit. But then he's also like super supportive of President Trump. Right. And it's like, I thought you were like this like countercultural guy who like was like against authority and like libertarian. And why would you be in the, why would you be in the pants with somebody like Trump? Like I, that never made any sense. But then once you realize that like the biggest problem with modern politics is that it's almost exclusively cultural and it's not material. Yeah. When you figure that one out, you realize, Oh, it's because they have the sort of same cultural set. Yeah, and right. that was the thing I kind of learned. And especially with like Ruben and all those other guys, because they don't, they don't they don't participate in what I would call real politics. Like real politics oh, no, to me yeah. is like politics that's based in a material analysis of the world. It's based on like what are the economic and material situations in which which force people to be in which way or another. Right. That's the stuff that really matters, yeah. right? And that's not to discount like social movements and things like that, but that's they're a component. Of it. Of it. Yeah. That's a part of it, right? Absolutely. But like the material stuff's really important, and. Ruben and all those other guys almost fight exclusively in the cultural realm. Sam Harris is like this too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because when it comes to Sam Harris talking about like, I don't know, like inequality or like tax reform, man's. Sam Harris is a dipshit on most things. I think <laughs> the only thing he can probably confidently is, um, is, is like meditation and like sort of like that kind of stuff. Like right. I think he can speak very confidently on that stuff. Yeah. Everything else, I think he's a bit of a wash. Um, but he's good at but he's good at writing. Like he's he's good at turning a phrase. Yep. So you can read something and go, well, that kind of makes sense because it sort of read well. But then when you read it back and you think about it a little bit, you realize like, wow, that's total bullshit. Hitchens was like this too, where yeah. where like you could read a <laughs> phrase of his or an essay of his, you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you think back on it later, you're like, that is absolutely batshit. Actually, like, it makes no sense. yeah, yeah, it's not as right as he, we thought it was. <laughs> no, it's not. And you know, and so anyway, I hope we're not getting too far afield. But basically, like that's there was just this this. Realization that the biggest problem we have in our society right now is that 
politics is becoming almost exclusively the realm of the cultural. Yeah. And, and it's and the biggest divide in the United States, and it's actually happening a lot all over the world. I mean, it's happening in Britain, it's happening in other places, is the real educational divide. You know, it's between the college educated and the non-college educated. And that's like the real divide that's happening right now, where the parties are realigning in right. the United States. And in some ways they're realigning in Britain too, right? And I think it's to politics is detriment that if you're going to base everything on just like college educated people, then you're you're in a road for disaster because you can't make a mass politics with just college educated people. Right. And I yeah. say that as someone who has two college degrees. Right. But like you can't like you just can't. You right? need, you need working only people. <laughs> yes. We need people who actually like work, you know, who actually like we need people who work with their hands as much as you need people who work with their minds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like. You know, so it's like important. And and this we've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, this is abandonment of the working class. And and it creates, I think, real resentments for people. And and I think they go one of two tracks. They either go the track that I went, which is they become socialists, they become leftists or broadly, you know, or they become all writers. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. The uh, uh, actually there was an interview, a few interviews like uh I, I still listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, and they were talking about uh, what led union workers in these various places to go to uh, Trump. And it was that exact thing. Like, And as much as I might dislike it, it is true that the Democratic Party has a, essentially abandoned the working class in a lot of ways. And and it, I mean, it it is apparent to a lot of uh, the people who went to Trump that they're not being supported. And here's this guy who's saying the right things, even though he's a piece of shit, who's never going to do it. He's saying the right things. And that's why. And I'm I'm not going to make excuses for the racism that people apologize for or made, but of course, yeah, but it absolutely made sense when you listen to them talk and they're like, well, the the educated the uh, the college educated elites, quote unquote elites, don't care about me and my job and the fact that I'm going to lose my job if this factory moves overseas or whatever. And I mean, the Republicans are the same, but if they can with Trump, they can frame it the right way and sell that point to people, and they'll buy it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at 2016, especially, you know, what hurt Hillary Clinton more than anything? And it was NAFTA. It was right. NAFTA and TPP, you know, and, and Trump would hammer at that, you know, for as much as he would do all the racial demagoguery shit, which is awful. And obviously, like that played a part of it. Yeah. But the other part was like every day he was out there going like she supported NAFTA. She shipped jobs overseas. She supports the TPP. It's going to send more jobs overseas. And yeah. I'm not going to do that. And like. You know, say what you will, like, was tr- Trump full of shit? Yes, he was full of shit. <laughs> but, like, the difference is, is that, like, the Republican, like, he at least made an attempt to, to, like, say something like that. Yeah. Right? Whereas Democrats won't, you know, and they do, they practice what I call, um, you know, woke capitalism. What they're interested in is using identity as a cudgel against people who have real material politics and yeah. want to advocate for real material politics while fighting for people who are of marginalized communities. Right. And I think that's like important. This is a really important thing to like, cause this is a very intra left sort of debate right now about right. like, how do we talk about class versus identity? Right. 
So I think it's it's important to note that like we should never, ever abandon marginalized communities. We as socialists, we on the left, we've always been on the forefront of that, right? If you look right. at the voting rights, you think of the civil rights movement, you think of the women's rights movement, you think of, uh, of the fight against fascism. All of those are always led by leftists. They're led by socialists, communists, anarchists. Yep. Those are the people at the front, right? So we shouldn't, again, but the problem with the Democratic Party, and I think this is a, a broader problem. I think the Liberal Party in Canada has this problem. I think that the Labor Party in the UK has this problem uh, to a lesser extent because the Labor Party still has a, a big connections to trade unions and things like that, is this sort of um, politics of identity, which is completely divorced from people's material concerns. And... And so they'll sort of talk about like, well, we care about the African-American community and Black Lives Matter and we care about the LGBTQ community. But then when you actually ask them, like, what do you want to actually materially do to improve these people's lives? And nothing. Yeah. And so I think that's the real problem is it's like people don't like that cynical um, use of their identities to advocate for something that they don't genuinely believe in. Right. Yeah. And so. Like, I think that's a big reason why Trump did better with certain minorities is because the Democratic Party didn't offer them anything beyond just we see you, we hear you, which is like, whatever. Like, at some point you do enough of that, people don't care. So I always make the joke that the big difference between a Democrat and Republican, you know, the Democrats and Republicans in the United States is the the Republican slogan is go fuck yourself. (laughs) That's pretty much, that's pretty much, that's their slogan, right? Yeah. And the Democrats' slogan is, we see you, we hear you, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's really it, right? These, you know, yeah. They act like they have so much empathy and caring. And again, it's all just performative shit. And, and people get tired of it. And people who would easily have voted for Democrats if Democrats had made just a small Small thing, like all Joe Biden had to do, I think he would have done so much better in this election if all Joe Biden came out and did every every day was, I'm going to I'm going to help end this pandemic, and we're going to pass the minimum wage to $15 an hour. If he had said that every single day, I think he would have won so much better. Yeah. And I think down ballot races would have been so much better. Um, but, you know, we, we realize that like this sort of neoliberal coalition of uh, people of color and college educated suburban white people can only get you so far. And like it's and it's and the reason that Biden won was not as much was was, yes, it was like those suburban white Republican voters who voted for Biden and then voted down ticket Republican. Right. right. That's what the lot of people were. It was the people who had built community and, and activist organizations and been really doing real on the ground stuff in Arizona yeah. and Georgia. Right. Especially Georgia, you know, and. And then they go back and then they just demonize the left. I'm like, dude, that's kind of how you won. Like you wouldn't have won this without people organizing yep. on the ground. You yeah, know, because- it wasn't moderates that won this for them. It was – no. I mean there was a lot of anti-Trump sentiment. Yep. But it was it was definitely like you say, grassroots organizations, leftist organizations, uh, Black Lives Matter organizations <laughs> that made this uh, turnout yeah. for them. And the Bernie stuff, the Bernie infrastructure helped him too. I mean, I think the Bernie infrastructure helped him immensely in places yeah. like Nevada and in Michigan, like, you know, and, and I, and I feel like I have two minds on this because like, on the one hand, yes, that's part of that's true. But then too, like Joe Biden's win was so wimpy that I wouldn't want to claim it. Like I wouldn't want to claim <laughs> it. We, we, we were the decisive factor in that because it, it was awful. Like objectively, like, you know, I mean, but it's, it's, 
he barely squeaks by. They barely keep the House, and they're probably going to lose the Senate because the two people they well, the well one one of the one of the people that they have running in Georgia is kind of okay. The other one's terrible, and that's yeah, John Ossoff. Yeah. He sucks. Um, but like both of those are probably going. They're probably going to lose, right? Yeah. But that's kind of the best of all possible worlds, right? Because I think the thing. I mean, I've said this. I say this a bunch. Is that Democrats are really ruled by two things. Besides the ICU, I hear you go fuck yourself. The other thing <laughs> that they're really ruled by is one, they don't believe in anything. Republicans, despite how evil they may be, believe in things. Yeah. And they will fight for them. Yeah. And the, but Democrats don't. They don't believe in anything. And then two, they don't want to do anything. Republicans love to do all kinds of stuff. It's yeah, evil. Oh yeah. It's awful. But they're good at it. They're really good at actually doing things. Yeah. Democrats don't want to do any of that. If Biden loses, if they lose the Senate, if the Democrats don't get the Senate, Joe Biden will be happier than the pig and shit because then he can spend the next four years basically saying, oh, I couldn't do all, all of this that I said I would have done because of those darn Republicans. I couldn't right. get it because of those darn Republicans. And he'll play the same playbook that Obama did and yeah. just kind of act like a wimp. And that'll be to his ben- that'll be to his short term benefit in terms of like how he wants to operate. But it's going to be long term. It's going to be electoral disaster because I'm thoroughly convinced oh, yeah. that if this pandemic if this pandemic didn't happen, Trump would have won re-election in a landslide. Yeah, and, and I, I genuinely believe that if the economy stayed pretty hot and we didn't go into a recession until 2021 or 2022, I think Trump would have kicked his ass. Yeah, people have convinced themselves that uh, what's happening on Wall Street is indicative of uh, what's happening with their well-being in some way. Even though it's completely divorced uh, <laughs> from it, they they yes. feel like a good Wall Street means the economy as well, which means that somebody at least I might not be at work, but somebody's at work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, and I think it's really important. Like I, I remember seeing some meme, and it's kind of funny, but it's just like the stock market. <laughs> the stock market is just astrology for rich people. Yeah, <laughs> which I kind of highlight, right? Yeah. Or they'll say that like the stock market is basically just rich people's feelings. Like that's all it really is. There's an enormous divide between what the stock market does, which again, the vast majority of Americans have nothing in the stock market. No, that's right. They just, or if they do, they have it through like their pensions or their retirements through their, through the companies they work for. Like that's how I have it. Right. Right. But I don't invest in, in individual stocks. I don't buy, you know, but vast majority of the people there's, so there's that. And then there's the real economy. Right. And the real economy is very divorced from that stuff. And, you know, and I think it's important that that increasing financialization is a hallmark of the centralization of capitalism. I mean, Lenin wrote about this in the high stage of capitalism, that as, as time goes on, and Rosa Luxemburg wrote about this too, but as time goes on, capitalist firms will become more centralized they'll become more cartelized and they'll become more financialized as time goes on. And that's exactly what happens. Right. So even with antitrust, even in the great era of like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive era and the, the breaking of trusts and things like that, um, it didn't really matter. Right. Cause they, they were, they were more profitable than ever when they broke up standard oil in the 19 teens with antitrust laws in the United States, they broke it up into a bunch of different companies. Then they broke it into Sunoco, Amoco, a bunch of other different ones. It made more money than ever. And it yeah. made and it made John Rockefeller the, the richest man in the world, um, and so. But yeah, I, I think I think that it's important for us to realize that like when the bottom fell out of the economy because of COVID, the 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 
did exactly what it did in 2008 and 2009, which was they pumped in a massive amount of cheap, easy money from the Fed into the financial system. Um, instead of, you know, if they had taken the, the trillions that they gave to Wall Street and, and, and to the, the banks during this time period or 10 years ago and just gave it to people. I mean, you know, I just gave them a check, like yeah. wiped out student debt or something like that. The economy would be so much healthier for it. Yeah. But it's and I but I think it's really important. There's a YouTuber I really like. His name's Renegade Cut. I don't know if you've ever watched yep. him. Yep. Renegade Cut's great. And he did a video recently where he said um, he said um, when he was talking about capitalism, he, go, he said a thing I think it's really important for people to understand, which is that the system is not failing. It's working as intended. This is working as intended. This is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, so when people say capitalism is broken or capitalism is off the rails, I would kind of try to remind them like, no, 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 this <laughs> is capitalism. Yeah. It's, it's broken compared to what you imagine it's supposed to do, <laughs> but uh, it funnels, it funnels wealth and resources and power to the people at the top who already have it and, and stops us from getting any. <laughs> as much as it yeah, can. So absolutely. And it's and it's built on that and the in the entire incentive structure and ideological structure that supports it is predicated on that very model. And it's yeah. about getting it going, having it go to the top. And and I think that's a big reason why I really feel like the one thing I think that can unite most people right now is that they kind of realize like something's not right. Yeah. Like like that, the, there's something's like not quite right. Like the the, the sort of the, the the ideology that we've been sold our entire lives is not right. And I think they get that right. And so we're really at a critical phase. You know, it reminds me of a quote, and I think it's like it may be from Gramsci or another one, but it's like, you know, the dead is gone. The the, the new is 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 not yet to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And it's like, yeah, we're in this weird period of history where things are starting to reshuffle, right? Yeah. And if people think that like Joe Biden winning the presidency, everything's going to go back to normal, you're an abs- you're absolutely delusional. Yeah. Because the forces that are that are moving our world and changing it away from the model that we've lived under for four decades, which is neoliberalism, that order is collapsing. Yeah. And what replaces it is either going to be worse which is a sort of like neo-feudalism, or it's going to be some kind of alternative, whether that be democratic socialism or social democracy or some kind of you yeah. know, economic planning. It's going to go either that route or the other. And I hope that it goes the latter. But I think it's really important that we on the left, like I said earlier, we build this sort of decades-long project where it's like, okay, and this is something Daniel Bester has said a lot. He, he's, a, he's a left-wing guy who writes about foreign policy, was on Bernie's foreign policy team. Okay. And he made a point of saying that, like, even if Bernie had won the presidency, he wouldn't have had enough top people to, to, to staff the State Department right. or the Defense Department because he would have had to have picked Obama people or Clinton people because those are the only people around. Standard Democrats stuff. Standard Democrats because they're the only people who could fill those roles, right? Yeah. And so what the left has to do is build institutional structures that are independent of the government itself to basically train people to be a part of this system. And then once they get in power, then they can sort of, and again, I understand that like, you know, and this gets into sort of left infighting or different ideological. I understand that this is what I'm advocating for is not perfect. (laughs) You know, I get it. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that like, it's a long-term project where, you over time you build those institutional structures that train the kind of people that would then house say a president AOC or you know or somebody right. like that. 
Because if you don't do that kind of work of building those institutions, then most of the people who are going to end up filling those positions are just shit Democrats, which is exactly what we're seeing right now with Biden's cabinet. (laughs) Yeah, you've got a lot of red Democrats uh, in various places that even even if the Democrats get the Senate, they have like Joe Manchin has said, I'm not voting for Medicare for all. Yeah. He's the kind of person who will not vote for canceling student loan debt, like that kind of shit. I mean, and most Democrats wouldn't. I mean, John, if John Ossoff wins in Georgia, he wouldn't vote for it. No, that's right. They're too afraid of what uh, the Republicans will say and what because they're moderates, they're red, basically, <laughs> or purple if you want to be uh, like generous. Yeah. <laughs> so they're really worried about losing a reelection. So. Yeah. Most modern Democrats govern and campaign out of fear, and that's why they lose. Yeah. If you look at, and with all, all, if you look at the New Deal coalition that developed in the 1930s and existed through the 1960s in the, in the Great Society, if you look at that period of time, the thing that's important to understand is that it was a very fragile coalition. It was a ten, tenuous one, okay. very much built centrality with, with one of the central factors of it being the sort of Southern stranglehold, which is part of the reason why the New Deal's gains were not as distributed to African-Americans. In some ways, they were actively shut out of it. Right. But if you really look at that coalition from the 30s to the 60s, what is the one thing it has? It won. And why did it win? It won because you had an outside left. You had socialists, you had communists, you had anarchists, you had trade unionists. You had all these people on the outside agitating for things to be different, right? Yeah. And so... You have an active, very active and vibrant left, which is then forcing FDR and others to sort of move in that direction. So you have that. Times people were truly, they're kind of in the place that we were in now in 1929, the Great Depression, where it's like, feel right. Like this isn't working. And they figured that one out. And, And they built a coalition that was rooted in real, Honestly, in my opinion, like real material transactional politics and with all of its flaws, it gained, you know, there's an incredible amount that was achieved during that time. If you look at, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the for the Arts, um, if you food stamps, uh, you know, um, uh, Head Start, pre, you know, universal pre-K for children. Right. those things are products of this. They're imperfect, but we got really broad social democratic gains. And the reason was, was because those people, the New Deal coalition set the agenda. They didn't, they weren't constantly reactive. They were proactive. They sort of set the agenda. And the problem is, is that the Democratic Party pretty much since, you know, Jimmy Carter, you know, since certainly since George McGovern's run in 72 are not that anymore. They've given up on the material part of it, and they've gone all in on the cultural stuff. And and I really blame hippies because hippies <laughs> hippies were terrible for left politics, in my opinion, because um, they were all about like drugs and getting laid, and they completely divorced it from like real political concerns. Right. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. And and uh, and so you know there was that shift that happened where the left retreated into cultural centers, it retreated into academia, and it stopped being connected to real people. Yeah. And I think the main goal for us as leftists is to reconnect politics to real people. Yeah. We need a working class left. 
You do. You need at the end of the day, you need a working class left. You need a a, a a coalition that's built of people. And I wouldn't even and I would go even further. I would say something that Crystal Ball and others say all the time, which is we don't just need a working class left. We need a multiracial working class left. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Because if you look at the vast majority of people in the United States, and I can't speak for Canada, but the vast majority of people in the United States who are working class, they're African American women or they're Hispanic women. Like right. that's who it is. Yeah. And so you know. When we talk about working class because our politics is so coded in culture, we can't figure it out. When we we hear the phrase working class, we think of a 55-year-old white guy who lives in like Pennsylvania who's got a beer belly. And like, you know, that's who we think of. Yeah, we need to fundamentally uh, change that picture we have in our head, right? Exactly. And it's the molding. It's the taking of like like the sort of rhetorical stuff that the Democrats say – which I don't disagree with. Like I'm, you know, I am <laughs> totally in favor of like Black Lives Matter. I'm totally in on LGBTQ rights. Like I'm right. all in about all that stuff. But you need to tie that with something real that's material that can change people's lives. Yeah. Because if all you're doing is just this cultural stuff that's completely devoid of like real stuff that can help people, whether it's a minimum wage increase or Medicare for all or universal or, or public housing or pre-K or like, you know, universal childcare. If you're not tying it to something that can really truly benefit people's lives, all you're doing is lip service. Yeah. And to me, that's the, that's the real shift that happened in my thinking because of Marxism and because of Marx, it was really getting back to materialist politics and thinking right. about that kind of, you know, material analysis is so important. Yeah. Like, uh, th- I made a, a little solo rant video right before the election because, um, a lot of people are saying you have to vote blue, right? They vote blue, vote blue. And I was saying like, but there are literally people who live their entire lives that with no, like, presidents come and go they come and go and red blue it doesn't matter their life never changes materially because of who's in that seat in the office and that's something that has to change like and that and actually when i was thinking about that my my thought was of uh people that in florida who were uh eligible to vote now because of or of the uh the bill that passed where uh, they could, yeah, ex-cons could vote, right? And but those people still are looking at it, and going, "Well, why? Like, <laughs> like, why would I ever bother? It doesn't change my life in any way." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, you're right, and, and and I think that's part of the reason why Biden did um, so well with with black voters was, I think, precisely this this thing, which is that there was a great article in the Nation. This was, I think right after Bernie lost the primary, they made a point of saying that. And I think it's also important to note here that like Bernie 2020 is very different than Bernie 2016. Like Bernie 2020 first coalition that, you know, was very rooted in um, connection of like those material concerns with those sort of um, concerns for people of marginalized identities, which is part of the reason why, uh, Bernie absolutely crushed it with Hispanic voters, right? Right. And but he didn't do that with Black voters, and people are like, well, "Why? Why wouldn't you know?" His message seems. And there was an article of a woman who wrote about, uh, I think it was maybe South Carolina, and she was talking to, to Black voters there, and she said, "You know, they, they and they basically said, we've heard it for years. There'll be some guy coming from Washington who will tell us that you know this and that and the other." 
and he'll promise us this and that and the other, and it never happens. Yeah. So why, you know, why is it that we would vote for him? And so they voted for Joe, I think mainly because they knew him and they knew that he was Obama's vice president. They knew that the base, you know, it doesn't really matter who I vote for. Like my real material life isn't going to change all that much. So all of a sudden I can at least, I know, like, you know, because Bernie for a lot of people is still a bit of an unknown property, like even in 2020. Yeah. And I think that like that hurt him. I, you know, I think the other part of it too, is that like, is that like, the black vote is not a monolith. Neither right. is the, the Hispanic vote. Like, yeah, there is no one group <laughs> that is exactly. that, right? Like, <laughs> and and African Americans have class interests too. If you yep. look at if you look at the the African American males and that vote in twenty twenty for Trump, it went from four to eight percent. Yeah. Now Obama was asked about this on his book tour. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just heard somebody talking about this on. Uh, he said. Quite frankly, what could easily be, without a doubt, described as just racist garbage. Right. Where he basically said that, oh, well, they voted for Trump because he's all about the bling, which is funny. It goes to show you how fucking culturally out of touch Obama is. <laughs> it's like, dude, like, you know, and I think the Chapo guy said this. They're like, rappers aren't about the bling anymore. They're about like, they're about taking Xanax and like zoning out. Like, that's the rappers are. <laughs> that's rap now, yeah. You know, exactly. it's like, that's rap now. It's like, you know, it's like a mood core and like, you know. And just, you know, like, just like zooming out like a droog. Like, that's what it's about. So, like, of course, he's like culturally completely off, right. you know, but, super dad moment. But then he said he's like, well, they like the swagger and this and that and the other Trump. So that's why they voted for him. And that's complete horseshit. If you yeah. want to know the real reason why that vote went from four to eight was primarily it was upper middle class African-American men. Exactly. Whose material conditions, their class interests benefited from Trump. Yeah. They're like, you know, I'm a millionaire. Or, you know, I make $800,000 a year. My taxes went down a tremendous amount because of Trump's tax reform. Yep. I don't give a shit what a racist crap he says. <laughs> I have more of my, my bank account and yeah, I don't give a crap. That's right. Like, I can afford another house or whatever. I can, I can afford, afford whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. so, like, so when when Obama, when Obama said that, I went to myself like, and yet this is the party likes to hold itself up as being like anti-racist or that they're the good guys on on race. It's like, if a white politician had said that, if Joe Biden had said that, he would have gotten his ass handed to him. Of course. You yeah. know, and he kind of did in 2008 when he was running against Obama. He said Obama was clean and articulate. Right. You know? and, and, he, and he got shit for it. And he deserves his, to get shit for it, right? Exactly. <laughs> he deserves to get shit for it. But like Obama can say that and like nobody, it's like, really? Like this is obscene. Like I just thought that was totally disgusting. It reminds me actually of, uh, I, I recently, well, I guess not recently, I listened to the audiobook, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And he, he actually speaks to this particular thing where like, uh, Bill Cosby used to really like, uh, criticize young black men for fitting into a certain stereotype. And it was, I mean, we're two white guys talking about race, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> but this is, that's he talks about it in this book about that very same uh incorrect uh style of racism that comes from uh more material wealthy materially wealthy uh black people and that's the thing that's the through line right this gets back to what i've been kind of ha hammering on tonight which is this idea of like 
when you've completely divorced politics from from real material concerns, all you have left is culture, right? Yeah. And so Obama's entire analysis is cultural. It doesn't have anything to do with like it doesn't have anything to do with like people's incomes or right. class status. Because I I don't think it's always the case, but I think for most people, there's a certain point in their life where their class interests will trump their identity interests. That's not all the time, but I think that's a good portion of the time. Yeah. Where it, there's I was just going to say, it, it seems to be around when they are property owners. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. Like it's, it's controversial to say, but there really truly is like a black bourgeoisie like that exists, oh. right? There is yeah. a, you know, there's a black capitalist class that benefit from the system. It's part of the reason why they wouldn't, you know, go all on in, you know, yeah. on, on, on certain people. So I think it's, I think that's important. Right. And, and again, like, that's their class status. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Like that's what they believe. Like, you know, I'm only going to critique them in as much as I'm going to say, I think they're wrong because of X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to like, but it's not because like I'm singling it out because they're a certain race or whatever. Like, no, it's right. more about class interests. Yeah. This is, everybody has them. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the discussion that one should be having about identity politics. Like you hear people just decry identity politics as uh, utter trash. Right. And it's not that it's trash, it's that it needs to be commingled with the or intersected with <laughs> uh, like yep. class interests and class uh, as a, an analysis. Absolutely. I've said this a bunch of times on a bunch of different podcasts and I'll say here too that I totally support – you know, I'm not against – politics of identity what i'm against is the cynical use of identity politics as a cudgel against the left which is what the democratic party does yeah that, that's what i'm really critical of um i left behind the sort of reactionary bullshit of like dave rubin and others precisely because i was so disgusted with the way that they talked about people you know yeah. marginalized communities yeah so what i'll say is this is that um Class matters because it's the glue that holds the identity together. Hmm. That's kind of the way I say it. So whether you're gay, trans, male or female, whatever, somewhere you are being fucked by your boss. Yeah. You are being fucked by the system, right? And so class is the glue that holds all of those together. It's the universal thread, right? And so that's why I care about it because it's the one, it's the one thing that I think can be truly universal because, and that we can elevate that while at the same time celebrating the, the rich differences of people. And, you know, this was something Michael Brooks wrote about in his book before he passed away about a cosmopolitan socialism. Something was rooted in having you know, diverse backgrounds and, and different cultural and ethnic backgrounds and all and, and different identities coming together over shared economic and social interests. And they fight for yeah. their shared economic and social interests and celebrate the diversity while coming together over universal concerns. Right. Um, the left needs to not shy away from universalism. It's actually something we believe in. We believe in universals. We believe in human dignity. We believe in the value of democracy. We believe in the value of um, of I mean, egalitarian society. Those are things that is un those are universal. We shouldn't run away from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's the, my critique is mostly rooted in the cynical use of, the, of of identity politics as a way to shut out discussions of inequality, shut out issues of, yeah, of, of critique of capitalism, and to really shut out. Um, in my opinion, actual like real voices of different marginalized identities, people who are African-American, people who are the LGBTQ community, people who are the Latino community, people who are from the disabled community. 
Right, right. You know, like they leave those people out too, right? Because the moment they start talking about economic stuff, they cut them off. That's exactly what happened to Jamal Bowman recently on CNN. They literally cut the feed when he started talking about how horrible Rahm Emanuel was for the city of Chicago. And it's like, it's like, that was not a technical glitch, man. Like he's critiquing power. Like the, you know, so it's, it's, you know, that's, I think it's super important. So we have to, we have to watch these people because the, the libs will not give an inch. Like these people, the neoliberals will not give an inch. They will, they will gladly cut off they will cut off your legs to get wherever they want to go. They yeah. have no yeah. problem doing it. And then they'll tell you they're very sorry they had to cut off your legs. Oh, of course. But, so but it's sorry, just, yeah. it's necessary to bring progress. It's <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll make sure you get a lawyer so that you can sue me. Like, that's right. Yeah. And then yeah, it's, we just happen it's, to know the judge and they rule against you, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. It, it's pretty so yeah. Wild. Like, like you say, like you see displays of, uh, white people, white liberals, uh, saying they're sorry a lot to people of color, black people specifically, um, during these black lives matter protests, you have like, what was the one video of, uh, all these white folks kneeling down and begging forgiveness oh, from like, it's super cringe, <laughs> oh, it's weird. It's so weird. <laughs> but, but they still are not like, these are these people, they're begging forgiveness for yeah. the way that but they won't support a defund the police program or they won't support you know like anything that like actually changes the system in some way right i think the perfect example of this besides the people kneeling or like washing feet or like just some other crazy outlandish shit that i've yeah. seen people do which is just beyond cringe is is I think the perfect example of the Democratic Party and, and the broader liberal class and how they think about all these things is what they did in Washington, D.C. The mayor, the sort of liberal Democratic mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, who repainted, you know, who renamed Pennsylvania Avenue to Black Lives Matter Avenue. And they put right. Black Lives Matter on the street, right? Yeah. While she's simultaneously doing all of that, she's also asking for an increase in the police budget. Right. Yeah. Right. That's who these people are. Yeah. They are very, they are cynical. And, and when, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how they don't believe in anything and they don't want to do anything. Right. It's, it, it goes back to these people really don't genuinely believe in anything. They're purely cynical in the sense that they'll be more than happy to paint black lives matter in the street because that doesn't challenge anything. It doesn't yeah. really change. Yeah. That's right. You can, if you, you can do that without like, risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you ask them even just piddly shit, like, can you take 5%, if you, can you decrease 5% of the, the budget or can you take 5% of the police budget and put it towards like community efforts yeah. or put it towards like, I don't know, some kind of dedicated income for yeah, people. Yeah, social programs, so, something, social anything. Programs, <laughs> shit like that, public health care, whatever. And they won't do it. They will not do it. And, and I think that is indicative of who these people are and why we should be very distrustful of the, the sort of liberal professional class, because that's who they are. This is, they are this cynical, they are this jaded because I think deep down, they genuinely believe that the, that the world can't be better. I think they genuinely believe like this, we're living in this hellscape. It's not going to get any better, but what we are going to do is we're going to acknowledge that it's bad. And yeah. by acknowledging that it's bad, that makes us good. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> yeah. merely acknowledging that it's bad or that these other people are bad makes us good. Right. And that's how we view it. It's a purely moralistic thing. And, and then it's no surprise that they lose and that people hate them because they see through it. I think a lot of voters see through it. Um, you know, and that's not to discount racism or any of that. No, of course because not. Because I think yeah. that's a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the other, but I think the other part of it is, people are truly like they see this bullshit for what it is which is just a cynical way to get people who would never vote for them anyway yeah that's right <laughs> all right i we've, we've been going for about an hour already uh i know i know i know i want to give you some more evergreen stuff <laughs> yeah i've been doing pretty contemporary stuff some the, evergreen uh, stuff. the okay so at the end of the show i try to uh, do uh, a little bit of counter propaganda. That's kind of what the whole show has been, but <laughs> uh, there are a couple things. Uh, I mean, if there's a thing that you want to specifically say that is like in the zeitgeist that is incorrect. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think the one that I think about the most lately because of the pandemic is that um, and especially since John Ossoff, who's running for Georgia elections for the Senate there, um, he gave this interview where they, where they basically asked him like these rapid fire questions, like, do you support this and that and the other? Okay. And he brought up Medicare for all. And he went, no, like he didn't even, you know, one of the arguments you constantly hear from, um, oh, here's a good one. This is a universal one. And this ties into Medicare for all. Okay. Is you'll often hear on like Fox News or you'll hear on either, even MSNBC and stuff like this. You'll hear like, oh, well, if we did what Bernie wanted to do, if we did what AOC would want to do, it would cost $100 trillion. It would cost $100 trillion or it would cost $85 trillion. One of the things they don't tell you about that is that that's over 10 years. Generally, that's projected over oh, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. So it's like not $85 trillion all at once. It's like $8.5 trillion all at one, not, oh, one year. And then it, maybe it's seven the next or even less. Right, yeah. Um, and and so that's one thing you'll often see in news that is total bullshit. So when you hear that or you see that, no matter wherever it is, you, you, you have to understand, one, that what that number is, is it's projected out over 10 years, generally, because that's how they do those kinds of things with like right. the congressional office and two the numbers probably a a um it's kind of probably overshooting it like it probably wouldn't cost that much so that's one thing i think universally it's really important for people to point out the other thing i would say is when it comes to medicare for all one of the things we constantly hear is we can't afford it we can't afford it we can't afford it well if you really look at the numbers like that's not true at all you know the united states spends more per capita on healthcare than any industrialized country in the world. And yet we right. get crappier incomes. We spend twice over twice as much as, as the UK does. UK spends about four grand a head and the, and the United States spends about 11 grand a head and we have right. shitty outcomes. Yeah. So, you know, this was something I think it's like, <laughs> it's trying to articulate this to people that like the kind of big, bold, um, progressive, proposals that people have, you know, whether it's Green New Deal, Medicare for all, getting rid of student debt, they always say, you know, often, how do we pay for it? This is a very common thing you'll hear. Well, first off, the government tends to just 
print money. So there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a whole new field emerging, and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it's something called modern monetary theory. It's MMT, kind of yep. MMT, which is a kind of new thing that people are kind of articulating about how government finance actually works. Yeah. The thing about the United States that's really important, for now, the United States is what you call the global reserve currency, or GRC. Basically, most people, when they carry currency, they carry the dollar. That's to our benefit because we can kind of have basically control over our money. Outside governments and outside countries don't have an outsized influence over how we set our currency. Not right. very much. So we can kind of do what we want. You know, Joe Biden could end student loan debt with the, with the stroke of a pen. You do it like that. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't cost anything, right? All you would do is just wipe it out of the balance sheet. Yeah. And, but the reason that they don't do it is because it keeps people in places of sort of subservience to the system. This is the same thing that happens to Africa and to South America and other countries that get in bed with the Troika, IMF, World Bank, and, and, um, you know, IMF World Bank, and there's one other one, it's, his name escaping me. Um, but if you get in bed with those people, you're going to be saddled with debt. And then yeah. you're sort of beholden to them, and then you're beholden to the neoliberal model. Yeah. And you look at countries in South America who said, to hell with that model. They did really well, you know, yeah, that's right. whether it was, whether it was uh, Bolivia or it was Brazil um, or Venezuela before the coups, right? Yeah. So they did very well basically telling this, this sort of U.S.-based system to, to go to hell. Yeah. So debt is not a problem. I think that's the other sort of myth that I think needs to be busted. Debt is not a problem. Um, this even goes back to the founding of the country, right? That he, Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers, everybody knows him now because of the fucking music. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, but, but Alexander Hamilton said a well-regulated debt is a blessing. Yeah. And he's right. Like countries, capitalism is run on debt. This is one of the other big myths. Like you constantly hear all the time about capitalism. It's, it's oh, it's all about balancing budgets and staying within your means. No, 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 no. Capitalism, <laughs> its very beginning was built on debt because you have to have debt. And the reason you have to have debt is because you have to have credit. And you have yeah. to have credit in order to project future production, right? You can't necessarily pay a person their yearly, their weekly wage until the end of the week. Well, how do you secure that money until then? You secure and how do you secure it with credit? By creating debt. Yeah. This is something that Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek uh, economist, says all the time that, you know, uh, you know that like um, debt is the is the grease that makes the wheels turn in capitalism. It, it, it wouldn't work without it. Yeah. So that would be the other thing I would tell people to do is don't worry about when people like oh my god the national debt the deficits. Yeah. All stop worrying is, about it. <laughs> stop worrying about it because all it is is a ploy to keep is to keep um, uh, developing nations connected and tied to the neoliberal system and to not be able to develop independently. Yeah. And to be burdened by it. And then domestically, what it does is it basically undermines any real capacity for meaningful change. And so, yeah, I just think those are really big things. Like debt does not matter. And, and, and most of the time when people are, are talking about it, it's really just a ploy to screw working people. It's a yeah. way of getting rid of entitlements, as they call them, entitlements. Quote, unquote, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's... You know, I think if Biden had won in a non-pandemic landscape, um, he would be chomping at the bit to do what he's wanted to do his entire political career, which is to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, which is what he's always wanted to do. Yeah. And 
And, um, you know, and even one of Biden's economic advisors said this before the election. They said the cupboard is pretty bare. No, it's not. No, it's not. Like, that's just, it's just a lie. Like, <laughs> yeah. so I'm sorry. That's that, not a thing. <laughs> that's not a thing. So I apologize to your listeners. I don't have something specific. <laughs> but those are two things I would say look out for. Is to listen to the way people talk about government plans. Like yeah. AOCs are like, oh, my God, it's $100 trillion. We can't spend this money, blah, 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 blah. First off, it's over 10 years. And second off, that number's probably way off. Yeah. And then two, debt is not really the bigger problem that people think it is because the United States, for most of its history, has been in debt and it's never had a problem. Yeah. Like, the United States, and we still go into debt. We've gone into trillions of dollars in debt over the last four years. And last I checked, like, nothing, like, we are collapsing in a lot of ways, but it's not because of the debt. No, that's right. Like, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, we have a similar issue here with our, uh, our finance minister in Ottawa, uh, with the federal government said, what was it? She said, Oh, the help and support we can provide the provinces is not infinite. And that is a lie. It's mm-hmm. just not true. And they've, they, they use this because they have to, they have to justify the means testing for any support systems they put into place they can't have a universal basic income without means testing because it costs too much we can't afford that debt it's bullshit it's all bullshit bullshit. (laughs) it's total bullshit that's why here i mean here in the united states it's part of the reason why they canceled the extension of of um uh, unemployment benefits because people realized that they were being paid more being on unemployment than they were actually working full-time yeah that's an indictment of the system. I mean, if you have a system in which the government's baseline pay for unemployment is more than people would get if they were working, yeah. you know, that's terrible. And the big reason that with this country is so much in debt, whether it be government debt or personal debt, is because of the lack of growth of wages. Wages have practically stagnated over the last four decades while corporate profits have yeah. gone higher than ever. There's this, I mean, there are multiple graphs you can look up them online where it's like the 1% goes like this and everybody else, it's like this. Yep. And it's like, and if you adjust for inflation, the the minimum wage in 1960 was worth more than the minimum wage today. And and it's like $15 for a minimum wage is actually pretty conservative. It should really be close to like 20 or 22. But yeah, the absolutely. reason they don't, but... And that's the whole, this, the whole reason they do all this means testing crap or this debt mongering crap is they don't want people to get the idea in their heads that one, all of this is possible. And two, that another world is possible. Right. They don't want to give people the idea that, oh, this could actually be different. Like this doesn't have to be this way. Um, and this gets into a little bit of theory with a guy named Mark Fisher. Um, who wrote a book called Capitalist Realism, which is an incredible oh, yeah. book. Yep. I highly recommend people read it. It's a, it was a big part of my shift to the left, along with the socialist left, along with Michael Brooks and reading Marx. Right. Mark Fisher was a huge part of it. And it's this idea that the, the book is based on this idea that the neoliberal order we live in right now, and we've lived in for the last four decades, we're sort of sold as it being natural. This is another thing you'll hear a lot. Right. You hear from people like Steven Pinker and others that humans are natural. Therefore, we have to create this sort of individual system. It's human nature. This is who we are, right? 
that's total horseshit. Like, mm. you know, first off, the vast majority of what we live in is is created. It's not something that we human humans have as much of a propensity to be selfish as they do to be cooperative and helpful. Like, yes, those go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, most people are not angels or demons. Most people are somewhere in the middle, right? We have the propensity to be an asshole. We also have the propensity to be charity, charity, charitable and giving. If you develop a right? culture of charity and giving and community. Exactly. <laughs> then that's if you, you develop a system that prioritizes people's needs yeah. rather than the pursuit of profit, you wouldn't have that kind of system, yeah. you know? And and so that's another thing I would say for people to look out for is when people make like naturalizing arguments for capitalism, because the lords during the feudal era before capitalism used the same <laughs> argument and feudalism instead of saying naturally said, this is how God wants it to be. Right. It's the same argument. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you hear it from people, know what it is, you know, the, this is the way it is because God says so. Anytime you hear people say, this is the way it is because science says so, you know, <laughs> Be a little skeptical of them. I'm not trashing science. I love science. Of course. But what I'm yeah. saying is people use it as a, a cynically as a way to avoid talking about real shit. Yeah. Um, so those are things I would say, you know, watch out for people deficit mongering because all they really want to do is just, you know, um, uh, screw over poor people. Um, because, and you want to know any bigger proof than that is somebody like Paul Ryan, former speaker of the house here in the United States, ran for vice president, total piece of shit. Yeah. Um, when he he spent his entire political career talking about deficits and debt, deficits and debt, these are terrible. Oh my God, we have this huge problem. We have to cut the government. We have to, you know, we have to do this and that and the other. What does he do? What is his major political accomplishment besides just being an asshole? Is his major political accomplishment is passing Trump tax cuts in 2017, which yeah. blew a trillion dollar hole in the fucking budget. Yeah. I mean, this dude racked they, the country, this country has racked up incredible amounts of debt because of the tax bill. Which goes to show you, it was never about the debt. No, that's it your. It was never about the debt. Yeah. It was always about we have to fuck poor people. This yeah. whole point. So anytime you hear people talking about deficits and debt and any of that crap, it's always an excuse yeah. to say, um, "Oh, we need to harm poor people," because they will never ever say, "Hey, maybe we should increase taxes," or "Hey, maybe we should pass a wealth tax." Or, hey, maybe you shouldn't be able to move your profits overseas. Or, hey, maybe you shouldn't be able to hide your shit somewhere. Or, like, they're never going to say any of that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and they're sure shit not going to cut the military budget. So, that's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So, how do they do it? They do it by fucking poor people. Yeah. And the big reason for that is because most poor people don't vote. Rich old people vote. Defense no contractors, way. they vote. Right. Um, uh, you know, you know, middle class people who are well off, they vote. And I think that the most terrifying thing is an organized working class that votes and not just does more than vote um, because liberals have a fetish for voting. This right. Yeah. I'm being sort of perverted, but we also but need to organize and strike and organize and strike <laughs> and build institutions that are independent of the government, independent yeah. of, of philanthropy. Um, and so, yeah, those are, those are things I would say are really, really important. You know, just watch out and you, your bullshit meter should go up all the time. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that I love skepticism. I love that you're doing this podcast because it, it brings two things together that I absolutely love, which is skepticism and left and being on the political left. Yeah. Because most people who call themselves skeptics are very <laughs> assholes who have horrible <laughs> politics. Yeah. So I think it's really good about developing a sort of left skepticism or as 
broadly, as I like to describe it, a left secular humanism, which is sort of a thing I'm thinking more and more about as I tell time goes on. Then I want to keep all those things that I really like about when I was in the atheist movement and add them in with, you know, the stuff I'm interested in now, which is left politics, Marx, material analysis. Because as, and as shady as the movement itself was at times and like much of the philosophy wasn't bad. Yes. So, so it, as a person radicalizes farther and farther left, you can use some of that philosophy that gave you the, the good critical thinking skills and the good uh, scientific analysis. And you can use that to inform your leftist politics. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it certainly informed mine. And you can look no further. I mean, there are a couple of writers I would highly encourage people to read that kind of have a good intersection of this. Um, I'm sorry for not being more diverse. They are two old dead white guys, but <laughs> but they're great. One of them is a guy named Coralis Lamont, who I might have mentioned with you before you may have heard of. Sounds familiar. Um, but he wrote a book in the 1950s called The Philosophy of Secular Humanism or The Philosophy of Humanism, which is incredible. I mean, I, I think it's a standard text. It's it's great. Right. Um, for being a book that's you know 60 something years, 60 plus years old, it's incredible. But he was also a very dedicated socialist and and Marxist. And so he wrote just as much about skepticism and critical thinking and atheism and humanism as much as he wrote about socialism. Right. Um, and and there's a couple books of his that are great. One of them is called Voice in the Wilderness, um, which has been out of print. You can find a dirt cheap copy. I found a dirt cheap copy. Um, that's a good one, you know, but he's great. You know, he's somebody who, who blends those two things very well. The other person is a guy named Eric Frome, um, who came out of the psychoanalytic tradition. Okay. Um, so he was he was influenced by Marx and Freud and sort of molded those two together. Okay. Um, and he's written beautifully on Marx. I think it's incredible. And the humanism of Marx, because I do think Marx was a humanist. I know there's like this divide in Marxist thought right. about whether there's sort of the humanist tradition and the anti-humanist tradition. I fall in the humanist tradition camp. But Marx very much believed in the value of empiricism. He believed in the value of skepticism. He believed in the value of science. Yeah. He did not see what he was doing as a rejection of the Enlightenment. He saw as a, as a fulfillment of the Enlightenment. Yeah. That what the, the liberals of the Enlightenment wanted to achieve could only be achieved through socialism. <laughs> right. <laughs> what they really wanted to achieve, what they actually believed in, could only be achieved through some kind of left politics. So Marx, and of course Marx. I mean, you can always read Marx, too. I mean, I highly encourage people to read Marx. Um, uh, I'm a Marxist. I, you know, I'm very much in that... Um, by love anarchist thinkers. I've read Kropotkin. I've always had a, a love for Kropotkin. Yeah. Chomsky is somebody else to read too. But yeah, don't don't feel like I'm not like the way that I just describe myself is either if people ask like I say oh I'm a Marxist or I'm a leftist or a democratic socialist. But like I'm but I don't like I don't like have a very specific tradition. Like I'm broad. Like I think I think of a big tent. We all learn from each other. Like yeah. I, I'm. I'm not like dictatorial in that regard. I know some, right. people, some people are, I don't really care. I'm much more interested in the ideas. So, um, you know, I think left unity is important. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the stuff I would say people check out and, and kind of get a sense of where I'm coming from and where a lot of other people are coming from. Cool. Uh, Normally, I would also do a foes and comrades at this point, but we are on uh, an hour 20 something. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
I know. I, I tend to be long-winded. I, you know, I feel bad because. Oh, you know, that's people, all right. It's like you know, I'm like get. Sometimes talking with me, it's like you get on a freight train, you're just going. It's, oh, that's that's perfect. <laughs> no complaints on this end. <laughs> Great. So I guess the next question is, where can people find your stuff online? Sure. Do you, man. Do you want to be found online? <laughs> sure. I, I got stuff that's public. I don't mind. So. Um, most of everything you can find of mine, you can find at my website, which is justinclark.org. Um, okay. I, prom- I promise you that wasn't, I wasn't trying to be pretentious. Dot com was taken. <laughs> yeah. um, dot com was taken and dot net sounds tra- tacky. So I went with dot org. Um, and uh, that's where I have some of my professional work there. It's kind of like a CV, but it's also a blog. Okay. And I've written a, written a bunch of stuff up there. My re- latest article um, is a review of Michael Brooks's excellent book against the web, which is another book I think people should highly read. Right. Um, if you want to know where I'm coming from, read him too. Um, and, or read my review and then read his book. Um, so justinclark.org. Uh, my Instagram is probably, is the really the only social handle I use. Um, it's uh, justinclarkph because I'm a public historian. So if you type in justinclarkph, you'll find it. I do book reviews there. I post articles. I post stuff I've written there. Um, and then just kind of other random stuff. And then if you are listening and you just so happen to be interested in the Democratic Socialists of America, I highly encourage you to check out DSA. I'm a member of Central Indiana DSA. Um, and uh, um, definitely, if you're interested in, in a big tent organization and you're in the States, um, DSA is great. We're almost at 100,000 members and uh, we'd love to have you. And if you're in the Indiana area and you're listening, we'd love to have you uh, join some of our stuff too. So um, centralindianadsa.com or .org, I think is our site. But if you type in Central Indiana DSA on Google, you'll get it. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks for joining me. It was really good. It was really good to talk to you again. I, uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Corey, it was absolutely, it was an absolute blast. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me and, uh, and, uh, stay safe and have a nice holiday. Yeah, you too. If you want to find out more from me, you can go to anchor.fm slash skeptical leftist. If you want to read the show notes for these episodes, which sometimes are kind of comprehensive, but sometimes they're not, uh, you can go to skeptical leftist Or if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash skeptical leftist. My handle on Twitter is at hardcore skeptic, and you can find me on Facebook at the mind of a skeptical leftist or search for one of the million Corey Johnstons that are on Facebook. Thanks and have a good one. Mm-hmm.